chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. I'll be reading from this, the King James Version. It's a little different from what's in your bulletin. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him, and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Peace to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. People like me are often guilty of talking about the general ways that Christianity influences culture or helps to shape something like a Christian society. We might talk about how, for example, uh, America is a Christian nation or biblical law or a biblical worldview Uh, has made our culture what it is. And therefore, if we lose that Christianity, then it will affect the culture as well. We might talk, for example, about how our Christian commitment to mercy gave rise to the building of hospitals, or how our Christian commitment to truth gave rise to the founding of universities, or how the Christian commitment to fidelity led to the strengthening and defense of marriage. Several teachings or texts might give rise to these culture-shaping events. For example, you might think of these like uh, Christian social teachings' greatest hits. Uh, You've got judge not, lest thou be judged, for example. You have turned the other cheek, or the truth shall set you free. Somehow Jesus' teaching that people who cause children to to sin should be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around their neck. That one didn't make the cut of the greatest hits, but you get the idea. Now, any plumber will tell you, stuff rolls downhill. That means stuff that's influential at the top of the hill will make its way into the bottom. And so when you think about culture being this hill. You think about what are the influences that make a culture or society what it what it is? What what are the influences on politics, for example? Well it's it's those things at the top. Those are the most important. Your absolute commitments, okay? Politics ends up being at the bottom of the hill. Politics is a result of other deep seated beliefs, of other deeply held beliefs and doctrines. So things like morality would come first. Like, what are your moral commitments? Or certainly your beliefs about God would come first. Your anthropology, that is, what it is you think about human beings, whether they're important or what kind of rights that they have. Your philosophical commitments, and we all have them, they would come before something like politics or economics or law. 
And certainly your source of authority. Maybe it's the Bible or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or your own stunning intellect. Whatever your source of authority is, these are all things that would be at the top of the hill, right? That would be the things that form a society, that form a culture. These are your absolute commitments, the things you won't budge on, the things that you know are true. So in our case, when we make general proclamations about how Christian theology has formed our society, it's helpful if we could put a scripture passage or a text to give as an example. What is a text that has formed a people, formed communities, and then worked its way down into culture, and then eventually worked its way into how we understand ourselves as political beings as well? Well, I think 1 Corinthians 8 is one of those texts. It's one of those very important passages. Now, I think the gist of the passage is pretty clear, but let me summarize. Corinth was a pagan city, a port city, considered seedy. And there were pagan temples everywhere. Idolatry was all over the place. And at these pagan temples, meat would be slaughtered and sacrificed to these idols, to these false gods. And the meat was then sold and eaten. And because the meat was unclean, having been offered to a false god, Jews would not ever touch the stuff. They wouldn't eat that meat at all. But Gentiles, having grown up on it, they had a, a hankering for it. And so they wondered then, well, now that I've become a follower of Christ, I see that you know, Jesus was a Jew, you've got all these questions about cleanliness and uncleanliness, can, can I still eat this meat or not? And Paul basically answers the question, yes, yeah, you can eat the meat, there's nothing wrong with eating the meat, but there's a huge caveat attached to it. And that caveat is the thing that I'm saying is at the top of this culture, social, making hill that works its way down. Now you can eat it because... Paul's very clear, the gods to whom this meat has been sacrificed and, and, and devoted or whatever, they don't exist. They're, they're not real. Okay, There's only one God. So the meat doesn't change because it was sacrificed and offered to a God who doesn't exist. Pagans worship gods that, that aren't real. But no, you can't eat that meat if it causes a brother or sister to stumble. That is, if a brother or sister in Christ, in the church, is offended that you are still eating this meat because maybe they came out of paganism and maybe they want to leave paganism behind, right? And they're saying to themselves, I've got to leave everything associated with paganism because I follow Christ now. That means I can't even eat meat that's associated with that temple. And by the way, you shouldn't either. Have you ever known anyone that told you how you should live your life, right? That, yeah, I'm not going to live that way and you shouldn't live that way either, and so Paul is saying, it is totally legal and morally okay for you to eat that meat. But if your brother or sister in Christ is offended by it, if their conscience is troubled by it because there's great confusion about whether that's a religious activity or not because that meat was dedicated to a false god, don't eat the meat. Don't eat the meat. Your brother or sister's conscience has bearing as a Christian on how you live. That's pretty amazing when you think about it, right? Because it's not the rightness of the cause that justifies the behavior of the Christian. 
Paul says there's nothing wrong with eating the meat, right? So you take into account your brother or sister's conscience, not just the technical correctness of a cause. Now that's a deeply held belief that I'm going to say again is at the top of the hill and it definitely influences the culture. When you believe that you should actually look out for your brother or sister in Christ and their conscience, and that determines what you do, that's a real difference, right? This is the opposite of just governing by power. Christians willingly put themselves then at the mercy of one another's conscience. It's a profound kind of self-sacrifice, and it goes beyond like platitudes of love. You know, we always talk about Christians that love one another and all of this sort of thing. Well, that's true, but that's, that's just kind of a word. What does that actually look like? Well, this is an example. Love of your neighbor looks like you giving something up that isn't even wrong because it offends your neighbor's conscience. Now, maybe a, an easy kind of example of this kind of self-sacrifice might be you would not drink alcohol in the presence of someone who struggles with alcoholism, right? That's a common thing. We all, we all were like, sure, we all know. Yeah, but you all think that that's the right thing to do because you're Christians. Because 1 Corinthians 8 has permeated into the culture, right? There's nothing wrong with the drinking of alcohol, but you take into account your neighbor's conscience. It could be that wearing masks could be an issue, that whether you think it's right or wrong could be something that Christians disagree on, And I would argue that 1 Corinthians 8 is going to be a passage that we reference when we think about whether we should or should not wear masks in a communal worship environment. Now, all of that said, not every time a person is offended does that mean that we should be forced to accommodate, right? That would and could lead to its own kind of tyranny, Indeed, what we used to call something like political correctness, do we even talk about that anymore? I think we've moved beyond it. Anyway, that actually created this exactly. Many micro-tyrants, right, who were constantly being micro-aggressed. The whole world then must call you by your preferred pronoun, for example, or we must agree with your assessment of the state of things. For example, we now have to be anti-racists or we are ourselves racist. Anyway, to those kinds of demands, spoken out of a wound to someone's conscience, we might agree or we might not. But merely being offended doesn't give you rights over me. That's not what 1 Corinthians 8 is saying. In fact, this passage really isn't about offense in general, but rather offense between brothers and sisters in Christ, and legitimate spiritual issues that have real grounding to cause offense. And again, this is a powerful teaching that undoubtedly shaped the Christian community, the Christian culture, and it influenced eventually our understanding of law and politics and tolerance and the whole thing. If we're not careful, though, we'll go too far and then all Christians will be known for is, well, we're really nice people. Christians are kind, right? Christians respect others so much that actually we become passive in the voice or in the face of tyranny. 
Now, that would be taking this passage too far, and that's not what Paul had in mind. This week, I ran across a tweet that kind of summarizes how the church has kind of been infected, maybe that's too strong a word, influenced by a culture of niceness. The tweet reads thus, God, wine, as in God said to use wine at communion. Us, Welches. Now, we'll debate later using grape juice at communion. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but it's an example of how it was instituted one way, and in some traditions they would never, ever, ever use wine. They would only use Welches. That's just setting the stage for what comes next. God says, preach, proclaim, herald. We say, what if we just shared the gospel? God says, disciple the nations. We say, Christian nationalism sounds yucky. God says, obey. We say, it's a relationship, not a religion. You see the ways we we take imperatives from God and we make them negotiable? We water them down? Let's not make the mistake of taking a passage like 1 Corinthians 8, a beautiful passage about self-sacrifice for others, and infer somehow that Christians are to tolerate evil or to become passive in the face of evil or that we're able to go to God with a list of demands because that's what we do in every other aspect of our lives. Hey, you can't defend me. Or let us not come to believe that God is indifferent towards evil. In our gospel passage, we see that Jesus encounters demons. As soon as he goes public, man, those demons come out of the woodwork and they make themselves known. I I think they knew something was going on and they were getting really nervous. And what does Jesus do? Does he play nice with these demons? Of course not. He declares war on them. He casts them out. He commands them out and the demons must obey. Evil is not tolerated in the presence of Jesus. It is denied entrance. And this is entirely consistent with all of Jesus' teachings as well. The followers of Jesus weren't commanded to just be nice people, passive people. No. They were to pursue holy living and to let no kind of sin be justified or excused or overlooked. So whatever niceness is a fruit of our faith, whatever patience with one another, whatever tolerance towards those who have a more tender conscience, Don't confuse that with a toleration of sin. To do so would be a terrible imbalance of thinking. Remember that John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel that when Jesus became flesh, he was the embodiment of grace and truth. So we have to hold those things together. We have to be exceptionally loving and patient with one another and We have a standard of moral living that is, frankly, higher than we can obtain. And yet, knowing that the standard towards which we strive, which is perfection, is impossible, we trust in the Jesus who casts out evil. For when we find that we cannot live up to our own standards, much less God's, we recall that Jesus loves sinners and forgives them of their sin. He cast their sins out so that nothing will keep them from God. His death on the cross is the greatest and the final exorcism. 
and he did it for you, the repentant sinner who is wondering if God can love him. Yes, he can, and he does. And you can know this by the way that Jesus defeats evil at the cross. It's not easy to balance grace and truth. So often we fall down on the side of one or the other. In Christ, we see the perfect balance. And in Christ, we are called to be loving and kind towards one another, a kind of tolerance that literally shapes cultures and politics and law. Also, we are not to countenance evil. So let us strive to be good at both, praying to the Spirit for guidance as we do. Amen.